Hey everybody, this is Alex, and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. Thanks to everybody who listened to my last episode on Hina Matsuri. I really love that show, and I honestly was not expecting to. I mean, I had a lot of t- hype around it, but I I knew about it before it started coming out, but I just kind of didn't pay attention to it. And it's one of those shows that really benefits from a watch-through with a dub, because while the Japanese version is as much fun, it's not as much fun to have to read every joke. And yes, there's a subverted dub, like, authenticity thing, but I think with the way that Hinamatsuri was directed and how physical a lot of the gags were and how kind of multi-sensory a lot of that show can be. It was just as easily enjoyed in the English format as it was in the Japanese one. If I sound more professional, that's because I got a little bit more professional this week since I will be, um, for the second year in a row, um, attending Liberty City Anime Con. I'm staring at my... uh, panelist badge confirmation invoice thing as we speak and i am going to be a panelist there hopefully for two panels the panel that i ran last year i'm doing a repeat of but i'm also adding to it since this was a big year for um disabled characters in anime with things like violet evergarden and a couple other shows um, that will be making an appearance in that panel. I don't know when that's scheduled, but it should be on the schedule at some point. Um, I hope. But, um, so I hope, hopefully I'm doing that panel again this year at Liberty City Anime Con in the Times Square Marriott on the 18th. Um, but the panel that I know I'm doing is a new one, actually, called Mommy and Daddy Hate You, A Guide to Crappy Parenting in Anime. And I will be doing that on the 18th at Liberty City Anime Con, which is the 18th of August, I should point out. Um, but it's the Liberty City Anime Convention is in the Times Square Marriott on the 18th of August, and I will be doing my panel at 1 o'clock. Um, that's p.m., not a.m. I know there's a.m. panels, but I'm not planning on doing anything that filthy this year. But um, if you want to check it out, you want to see what I look like in person, I have a beard. I'm a beardo from the Internet who talks about anime. Let's be let's Let's just cut straight to it. I'm a beardo from the Internet who talks about the Japtoons. Um, <laughs> I'm a terrible person also, um, which will make it fun for me to talk about other terrible people and rank them uh, from most to least terrible. Um, but that will be happening on 1 o'clock at the Times Square Marriott on the 18th as part of Liberty City Anime Con, so please check it out, and I will, I'm sh- We'll definitely have at least a couple more podcasts before then. So I've been told my other panel will be scheduled at some point. So when that panel happens, which that um, Full Metal Full Metal and Beyond, a an exploration of disability in anime, is my baby. For those of you who have been listening and don't know, I am actually a physically disabled person. I am a 
two-time brain childhood brain cancer survivor who managed to have enough brains to be able to talk on the internet about cartoons, which arguably not a lot of brains. But I, after going two rounds in the ring with brain cancer, I, it leaves you a little, a little docked. Um, which means basically that I can't use my left arm. That's what you'll notice when you see me in person. But um, no, so definitely keep an eye out for that announcement. I'm hoping it's also on the 18th. Um, fingers crossed. But my badge says it's for all weekend, so I guess they can schedule me whenever the hell they damn well please um, and tell me. But I'm hoping it's on the 18th. I have told them that I don't want to do any other day than the 18th, so we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, so check out that panel once again at 1 o'clock in the Times Square Marriott at part of Liberty City Anime Con. Come and see Alex Holt Cohan as he performs Mommy and Daddy Hate You, a guide to crappy an- anime parenting. Um, that's my best um Actually, it's not my best broadcaster voice since I'm technically a certified radio DJ in the entire world, um, which amazes me. Um, not very high times when watching and with a lot of supervision, but still, I'm allowed to do it. Like, I could go into a radio station and be like, give me the mic, and they'd be like, why? I'm like, here's my, look me up, I'm certified, haha. Um, but yeah, so definitely check those out. Um, I'll be promoting it on Instagram and all that junk. I'm still considering and working through my ideas for Instagram TV. Um, but I hope that I'll be able to figure that out at some point. I might post part of my panel up on Instagram TV, actually. Um, if I can remember the video camera to record it. But that's not what we're here to talk about this week. We're here to talk about something totally different this week, kind of. Um, So, without further ado, this week we're going to be talking about Megalobox.
So for those of you who may have run into me on Twitter or run into some of my posts on Twitter or Instagram, you, which is probably none of you, let's be honest, uh, you, but if you had, you would have noticed uh, before the current season, before the summer season, I was hyping up a little show called, that is now a big show, called Megalobox. And this show was a reimagining of an old famed boxing manga slash anime called Ashida no Joe. And Ashida no Joe is a, like, a, a boxing epic in which the main character, and spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't figured that out by listening to this podcast, but spoiler alert from this point on, uh, in which the main character, Joe, just kind of, like, becomes this masterful boxer. Um, and eventually I'm told that he dies at the end of that story. And it's a really famous, really well-known manga for a... It, it's like a historical piece, almost, basically. And as part of the 50th anniversary, this show was commissioned, and this show is supposed to be a take on Ashita no Joe but in a futuristic setting, meaning, like, and not, like, the future, like, ooh, sparkly lights, although that is, that that is present in some parts of this show's version of the future, but mostly it's this, like, run-down, grungy, broken, malfunctioning future. And in this malfunctioning future, um, boxing is aided by basically upper body exoskeleton parts and the main character Joe um, who before he gets his name his official name quote unquote he's called um, I think Junk Dog or Junkyard Dog is this guy who along with his coach his like sleazy coach is just they're they're they are rigging underground boxing matches for money, and it's led you're led to believe that somehow they got involved with. At this point, they kind they explain it a lot more later on um, that they got involved with this gangster who apparently runs a restaurant nearest I can tell because he's always shown like cooking or in a like a kitchen's or in, like, a restaurant-style kitchen, which means, like, a a kitchen that looks like it's made to feed other people, not just the person who's, like, living in that building or whatever. But, so they're fixing these fights, basically, to make him money, and they get some of the money on the side. Hooray. Um, But at one point, he is confronted by the kind of other, the the opposing force of this show. And for those of you who are maybe not into sports manga or anime, um, the idea behind a lot of sports anime is that you are given these, you're given the main character, the like, the, the main character who you follow. And then you A, you're given all of these side characters who you also follow, who are also side rivals and stuff like that. But you're usually given a singular antagonist 
rival in a show like um, uh, Kuroko's Basketball or the basketball basketball which Kuroko plays. Um, That show is actually pretty unique because Kuroko, the ostensible main character, is not actually the main character. He is this, like, side shadow almost to, uh, I think his name is Kogami. And Kogami's main rival for most of the show is, I forget his name, fuck. But it, they, they set up this big bad dude who seemingly can mind control people on the basketball court. And he has to, like, surpass these other five people before he gets this other guy. And it's, like, all kinds of, like... That show basically boils down to, what if basketball with Dragon Ball Z power? Which is actually a lot of fun, believe it or not. But that's kind of how these shows go, is if they're... And if they're written well, it works well. If they're not written well, it kind of falls apart, and you don't you don't believe either side of the argument. And what's really unique right now is there's actually a lot of sports anime happening. I think there's um, there's something involving like baseball. There's a baseball anime that's not just that um, money that like money ball situation that was I think now two seasons ago. I'm sorry if I'm drinking. Because it's hot. But it's fucking hot out. Um, but, so basically that's how sports... Sports anime and manga stories work. Is they set up an opposing figure and then you have to, like, fight all the mini-bosses. And then you, like, fight all the mini-bosses with the main character up to this opposing figure. And this, um... This show is no different. So, our main character, Junkyard Dog, is confronted, eventually, by this silver-haired Adonis box, like, guy who's made it out to be this, like, silver-haired Adonis of a man um, named Yuri. And Yuri is a professional megalo-boxer. Uh, um, or I think it's called like Gear Boxer or something. Um, we'll call it Mecha Boxer. Um, he's a professional Mecha Boxer, basically. And he, for whatever, for I think three of he sees something in Joe, decides to take on Joe, and Joe doesn't win, but he gets close enough to winning where Yuri's like, oh shit. You might be the real deal. F- like, figure out how to challenge me again. And through, uh, like, through the next couple episodes, it's been A, on um, Joe getting into the tournament and getting into the quote-unquote tournament that's set up called, um, called, I think, like, the Megalonia Grand Prix or something. Um... But also, his at some point his gear breaks because it's, and this is the best. It's left in the charger too long, like a bad cell phone from 1995, and just fucking explodes, which is hysterical to me because the 
the idea is that, like, all these boxers are using these exoskeletons called, that they call gear. And he routinely doesn't, he doesn't win because he is actually, like, throwing fights. But if you know anything about people who throw sports matches, you, you know that they have to be really good. Because what they have to do is they have to win for most of the match, but then be able to control the match so thoroughly that they then lose. That they can make themselves lose. So they can give the... If they're good at it, what will happen is, let's say somebody wants to throw a tennis match and they're a really good player. What they will do is they will win the match for most of it, but then... Like, maybe the middle of the match, they'll get a little sloppy. On purpose. And then they'll get a little sloppier and sloppier and sloppier until the match is almost over. And then they'll just bottom out. They'll bottom themselves out. As if it's a natural occurrence. Which is both really difficult to do, but even, like, really insanely difficult to do in a way where no one suspects it. And if you're doing it multiple times, then you really have to be good at it because you'll get caught if you do it the same way twice. And and you have to keep such control of the match that all of a sudden it's like you're always almost there. And in Junkyard Dog's case, he... uh, did this all on this like crusty old really badass gnarly looking gear and it's here where I want to talk about the look of the show because if you know anything about this show you probably notice like that's that show that looks fucking old right that looks like it's been out for 10 years already right and the reason why it looks like that is that show is actually produced in full on widescreen, current-gen, like, 1080p gorgeousness, as as nice as an anime can look. And then what they did to give it more of a, like, grimy, aged feel is they took it into their... When processing it, they down it. And basically what that means is instead of... Take YouTube, for example. Instead of playing YouTube at the full capacity, they said only put only play this video at like 720p, 480p. So you're getting this full beautiful video in the right size at a very distinct resolution that is about as good as you could get in late not in like the late 80s to late 90s like range of anime, and that has a really specific look, and it, they nail it in this show. Like, the, you constantly see that, like, the lines are all broken up, and they're not as straight. They're not quite as straight as they should be, because they're, like, the pixel drift is just enough where it feels, where the line feels wider, and that, like, feeling crusts every piece of this show in a really unique way that makes that makes this show's a version of the future feel just like 
filthy in many cases, and also makes this show feel authentically old, even though it's not, which is really impressive. So, back to the narrative part of this whole rant. Um, it's at, at the point at which you see Joe's gear, you realize, like, oh, he's, he's not fighting with the latest model, ladies and gentlemen. That might, that might be part of his issue, beating Yuri. But, when his, when his old, when his old trusty gear basically gets overcharged and and the battery explodes, he gets access to, like, this new fancy, like, powerful gear, and then immediately, it gets immediately destroyed in a street boxing match with this other dude with this insane, like, overpowered gear that he depends on entirely, and Joe beats him without a gear. And you're like, oh, shit, that's cool, but what are they gonna do for the next, for the first match? And what happens next actually disappointed some people, from what I understand, because, you know, you sign up for a mecha box for, like, a exoskeleton boxing show, you want, you want some real steel shit in there, and if that show doesn't give it to you, you're like, oh, man, I was hoping for some real steel shit. Now, um, I am a huge fan of Hajime no Ippo, so I was really into the idea of, like, real steel, like, mixed with Hajime no Ippo. But I also would just, like, I'd be cool with just some straight-up awesome boxing. So what happened next was, like, it was a surprise to me, but it wasn't, especially since all of the promo material for this show showed Joe in his, like, um, in his, like, boxing exoskeleton but oh and I skipped over one thing is that he has got to be part of the Megalonia tournament because he is basically participating in the biggest match fixing of the universe and he competes to get into the final four and then loses and makes himself and by and also primarily his, like, gangster handler, his gangster handler, his, like, mafia handler, um, a shit ton of money. Think, um, kind of like the, kind of like the plot of Redline, if you've seen Redline, and if you haven't seen Redline, see Redline, just, just go watch Redline if you haven't seen Redline. Um, that's all I'm gonna say. I'm not gonna explain the plot of Redline 2. I'm already explaining this shit. But, um, so basically that's how he gets into Megalonia, because he uh, doesn't have an ID. And in this show's universe, basically you have a whole class of people who are normal citizens, and they, like, live... They live in Megalonia City proper, and they have IDs, and they go to work, and all that fun bullshit. But then you have, like, and you have the upper crust that's included in that. Um, but then you also have characters like Joe, characters like his coach, um, 
who I want to call Patches, but it's not right because that's terrible. But you or a character like the like their little like assistant coach Sachio, who comes up later, who are just like these street hoodlums who live in the outer ghetto outside of Megalonia and scrounge for everything and don't have a official citizen ID. Which means that Joe, which means that Junkyard Dog, who is only ever referred to as Junkyard Dog up until this point, doesn't have an ID and can't compete in the tournament. And then, so to do this, his gangster handler said, okay, we'll get you an ID and we'll get you, we'll, we'll, we'll hook you up so you can hook us up later, basically. And so when they're choosing the, like, name for his counterfeit, for his counterfeit ID so he can compete in this tournament, he just says one word, and that word is Joe. And the idea is that he's an average Joe, and the, kind of the overall, like, arcing message of this show is, like, an everyman versus, like, the, somebody who has literally the best money can buy. And to kind of lean into this gimmick, A, and B, to intimidate his opponents, really, and because they're broke as fuck and they don't have any way to get a new gear, he goes into his first fight with no gear. He goes in to fight somebody with, like, an exoskeleton-enhanced punch with no, with nothing, with just his bare fist. And he wins. And he wins again and again and again. And throughout this entire process, you get this kind of uprising feel from him. And Yuri, on the other side, is actually not only the champion, but he is the, like, he is the patron, he is the patron fighter of the people are putting on this show, this whole tournament. And this whole tournament is in the service of selling Yuri's gear, basically, to the military. And the idea behind Yuri's gear is that it's a neurologically integrated gear, which means that he literally has two metal arms, Colossus-style, and he just puts boxing gloves on the end of them. And, like, his... And so, eventually, you know, Yuri is always this big, hot shit fighter. But eventually, Joe becomes a big, hot shit fighter, too, because he is this... He becomes, unwittingly, not on purpose, he becomes this cultural icon. Because he is... He is fighting without the benefit of the leg up that a gear gives him. And that, in a way, stands for the, all the people in this show's universe who are just, like, scrounging to get by, and they're, like, they're the forgotten men and women of this, of this show. And you see, like, girls get, you see, like, these obey, like these obey style, Banksy style 
posters of him, graffiti of him. You see this girl get a tattoo on her thigh of him. And he's just trying to get to Yuri because they are kind of orbiting each other constantly and they have moments where they interact and they both kind of egg each other on to the next step of whatever. And this entire time, Joe is winning, 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 winning. And of course, we have what is basically... So if you have any idea about how these shows kind of work, at least in their first season, and while I doubt that they would do a second season of this show because of the way it ends, which we'll get to, I don't doubt that there's want for it because while I was the only person I saw, which I was stunned at, like, hyping this show up, like, I... I threw this show up on Instagram and Twitter and everything and um, I described it as Hajime no Ippo meets Real Steel meets Hip Hop and Evan Mento hi Evan if you hear this w- tweeted me like I had no idea this show even existed this is really cool. It's a tribute to... It's a 50th anniversary project of Ashida no Joe. That's badass. I'm like, oh yeah, it is. I forgot to mention that. It is, does seem pretty badass. So I was championing the show before it came out. And then when it came out, it, it took like two episodes. And then it was just the show everyone watched. Because it was so... Wild that it was coming out. It was it it it, it is paced really well. It just everything about everything about it is done as well as they could. It's not it's not a perfect show, and the ending has something to do with that. But it it does its level best to tell its story and to tell its a story that is actually uniquely different than Ashida no Joe in a couple key ways, once again involving the ending. But, so, we have Joe and Yuri constantly dancing around each other, but then of course, these show, the way these shows go usually is there is a like, um, oh, quote-unquote, like, inter- interfere or interloper who tries to like sweep the legs out from under our protagonist character, and that comes in the form of the younger brother of the, I think the younger brother of the woman who is backing Yuri, and he tries to take Joe out in order to get to Yuri so he can prove that his version of, like, a souped-up, awesome fighting gear is better than his sister's. Um, but of course, he outfights that guy, and then we have, and this is always this is always odd, because it's it, they do this in sports shows for the specific reason of showing you exactly how much the character has grown. 
And in this case, the Joe faces this guy who seems like a lion, and he's American, and he's this, like, big, brash asshole. And, of course, you know that Joe wins. Like, you know that Joe, he struggles a little bit, but way less than he did the first, like, for his first couple fights. And this, what what this does for a for a sports show is it takes and um, shows like um, Hajime no Ibo tend not to do this or, or tend not to do it in the same way. Is it takes your brain out of okay? He's the young. He's the upstart guy. Like just like barely climbing the stairs to his opponent and puts you in the headspace of, oh, he's real shit now. Like, we're, we're, getting, up, we're getting up to a battle of the titans instead of a David and Goliath situation. It makes it... the That narrative device makes it so you're looking at them as equals instead of one bigger, one smaller. In um, Hajime no Ippo, this is done when Ippo actually beats the, like, antagonist of the first season, who is this, like, old-school boxer who can, like, stop people's hearts and shit. And then he becomes the, I think, the featherweight champion of Japan. And they keep introducing stronger characters, super strong characters, but they always have, you remember the fact of, like, no, he's the freaking champion of Japan. And as much as, like, you see the, like, featherweight champion of the world, which I don't think they ever got to, or they might have gotten to him, but um, you also see Ippo participating just title and just title fights with people to defend his title and you see how like it one-sided those become in a really just insane way and then of course they have the occasional like quote-unquote exhibition match with the with the person who he's supposed to really be on the same level as and you see exactly how much how far how much farther he has to go uh, Megalobox is different because they use that one character moment to, like, just say, okay, this guy's the real shit. And this guy's the real, real shit. And in between all of this, you have a lot... In between all of the fights, you have a lot of melodrama. Like, you have the, um... Like, the head of the corporation that backs Yuri trying to get them disqualified, and then his coach and Sachio, the, like, little kid, really Sachio, convincing her, like, look, uh, and also Yuri, convincing her and saying, like, look, like, we need this. We earned this. Let us fight. And it's just... It's just... Even the melodrama is really well done. It's not so much that it, like, comes oozing out of every dead space in this show, but it is enough 
where it gets the emotion across in a really genuinely in a really genuinely moving way and you understand the characters and you understand kind of why why they do what they do at the end of the day um and this all builds up to this massive fight to this just like this seemingly endless boxing match between Yuri and Joe, and it goes on for, like, 15 rounds. They're, like, withering stumps by the end of it. And this is where it diverges from the show, from the... This is one of the main ways it diverges from Ashida no Joe. Is that it... A, it doesn't kill the ma- the main character in Ashida no Joe, and lots of people said the only way this show sticks is if it is if Joe is fucking dead by the end of it. Like he won the fight, but he lost his life. Um, but that's not really what this show wanted to be about, really. And by the end of the show, Yuri has, like, abandoned his, like, fancy nerve gear. He's, like, had it surgically removed. He has fucking giant nightmares. And then he gets over those and he goes into a fight with Joe on what he called even footing. Because the entire... The entire show, Yuri has fought with this gear that gives him a tremendous advantage because yes he's an excellent boxer but he also is using the most advanced the most expensive gear in the tournament not to mention the fact that you know his 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 team is also running the tournament so it, it like, Yuri is aware that he is not, that he had never fought on an even playing field, but he has also never encountered a boxer up until this point where he felt like if he was fighting on an even playing field, he wouldn't still win. And that question for him is what drives him to remove his gear and just go in as a person against a person. And this means that they're really slogging it out. There's no help from the exoskeleton. They're just going to town on each other. And in a show like Hajime no Ippo, they have, they have this, like, they add a little bit more of a, like, Dragon Ball Z effect to it. You don't, like, and if you've ever, and I keep referencing Hajime no Ippo because that's another super recent boxing anime and manga, but, um, or super recent in air quotes, I guess. But in Hajime no Ippo, it's like they, it's like the characters are getting hit by pistons. Because you see their, like, heads fly back at you. You see fucking air shoot out of the back of their head like they were having air forced in one side and out the other. 
like straight through the pore, like it's a straight line. And the effect is you get these really like powerful, impactful hits that are really so visceral you almost feel them. You're like, oh, he just got fucking cold cocked hard. But in a show like Megalobox, where it's already so fantastic that that doesn't really... That, that isn't necessary because you don't, you don't need to add anything to the setting to get somebody excited about it. They've spent all this time building and building and building on tension. And the setting is so futuristic and fantastic that people who are there for that kind of stuff have already been satisfied. So, in Megalobox, when it's just two people boxing without exoskeletons to assist them, it feels really human, and it's like, it feels honest, and the boxing and movement feel precise and measured, and they feel more desperate, and it's less... It's less superhuman feeling. It's more accomplishable feeling. Especially since... It, also, a difference between this and something like Hajime no Ippo is that in this show, uh, you're dealing with featherweight boxers who are, like, rail thin. Like, they are developed... They've, like, fully developed honest, serious amounts of muscle... And they have scars all over their bodies by this point. Yuri has had all of his gear taken off, taken off, so you see these huge, like, identical scars that look like his skin has been scraped off for, like, all of his arm and part of his chest and part of his back. And for Joe, you see basically a scar for every fight he's had. Because for every fight, he's gone into it at a distinct disadvantage. So that anytime somebody hits him just right, they, like, take out a chunk of his cheek, take out, like, part of his shoulder. Uh, and so he has scars all over his upper body. Which is... Uh, uh, it takes the kind of story aspect out of the scar concept in something like a boxing manga because I, if I remember correctly Haji, um, Ippo has a scar has a scar in Hajime no Ippo but that scar has story significance and it's meant to remind the character of like, remember when this shit ha- got real and happened to him and this is just this show is just like, no this shit happens we're using Exos- powered exoskeleton to box and when one person doesn't and of course people get fucked up um, so that that like human feeling adds to this fight and makes it just like really epic like, like I said a true clash of the titans and one of the other things that adds a lot of flavor to the show is the soundtrack and while the opening song is kind, while the opening of the show is kind of pun intended a little bit, kind of dog shit. 
I mean, this this show has amazing music and amazing sequences that like run with that music, but this the opening to the show seems like it was a good idea on paper, and then they put it to practice, and it like the idea gets across, but it just doesn't. It doesn't work great, but it also doesn't work badly. It's just kind of mediocre. And I know a lot of people will probably jump down my throat at that because people apparently really love this freaking opening. And I'm just like, it's just like, we get it. He's a dog running through the desert at another dog who's white and fancy. It's a little on the nose, I guess. I don't know. But the, but the rest of the soundtrack, the whole of the soundtrack, is this like really hip hop inspired, really well, really well done Japanese hip hop and Japanese rap. The the ending theme, the ending theme for every episode, not the ending theme for the last for the finale episode. Is I, when you first he, when you first hear it, if you haven't seen the show, you'd be like, "I did not expect this," but it it starts to be this kind of like almost palate cleanser that gets you that like closes out that like closes off the bottle of this show in a really interesting and fun way, and then there are these. They're all the interstitial music pieces that are just, like, incredible. And the good news is, you can go and you can get the soundtrack on Apple Music right now. I've been listening to it for the past couple days. And, like, even removed from the show, the music for this show is incredible. So that adds to it. The other thing that adds to the show a lot is... At the beginning of every show... and. It starts to feel like an I spy situation, which I find hysterical. After after the title sequence, after the opening, but before the title, but before the show starts, and before the title cards, this show has a love of late title cards. Um, they put in a piece of interstitial music. I forget exactly what the piece is called, and they put one cell of animation that appears somewhere in the show. And it acts a little hint. Once you see that frame in the show, you're like, oh, that's what they were, that's what they were saying. So, um, in one, they show, and they, they, they don't always make sense. They're not, they're not these big, it's not like they're showing a whole scene or a whole background. They're showing you a close-up, out of context, like um, contextual story shot, if that makes any sense. So one one episode they use like the corner of the boat that Team Nowhere, which is the name of Joe's team in the show, lives on, and you're just like, huh? And I think that one ends up showing up. Being the 
shot right before you see the battery burn out on his old gear. And another one, there's a, like, a fish dish that eventually is eaten by the gangster as he's explaining something. And just these little atmospheric shots kind of click you into the world in a really fascinating way. And all of this kind of helps to get you into the headspace where in the final episode you're in the middle of this, like, clash of titans, battle of the gods, boxing match that goes on for, I think, actually 13 episodes, but or, or 13 rounds. And then they kind of fade out. They, they don't show you who wins. The only thing you see is an IV pole running through an emergency room. And you're like, oh shit, somebody died. I think it was Joe, because the people who made this show realized that people have gone, they've looked up the history of this show, and or they'll know the history of the show, and they'll say, they, we, they are expecting Joe to die somehow. They don't know how, but they're expecting Joe to die, either after winning his last fight or in fighting his last fight. And then you flash forward, and you see Yuri in a wheelchair, and you're like, oh, he got fucked up. But then they don't show Joe for much of the episode. For, for much of the rest of the, of the, like, prologue. And then they just casually, like, he's picking up, like, training gears for all the orphan kids that his, at his, at his new gym that he started with his coach from Team Nowhere and Satchio and... He's living this kind of, like, happy, fulfilled life, and he's fine. And you find out that Joe won. Joe really won. And by Joe winning, he basically put Yuri in a wheelchair. Not intentionally, but that's just how it wound up. And they have this big cookout where then Yuri and Joe are hanging out, eating together, and they're friends, and they're really good friends, and really old friends, and they're just like... They're just buddies. <laughs> They're just like weird buddies. Which is... It's totally different from the way that I read the Ashita no Joe. Ended, but it is... There's some real truth about that. About Megalobox's ending. And the real truth of that is that... Uh, the clo- the phrase goes the closest thing to hatred is love, and the cl- and the, and in that idea, if you are chasing after someone so much, and if you see someone as a rival, then you are inherently close to them, and if they see you as a rival as well, they're close to you. Rivalries are like in Pokemon are described as, most of the time, just like, just like little asshole, like, uh, tournament between assholes. 
but in reality, it's a it's basically a friendly competition, and Pokemon played that out eventually with like Gary being like, "Oh, Ash, you're actually a good dude, and you're my friend, and I'm sorry for being a shitbag to you." But in this show, it takes it it takes the concept of a rivalry seriously because when throughout the show when him and Yuri encounter each other there's this like deep need to fight each other but you get the strong sense that it's not out of hatred you get the strong sense that it's out of admiration for each other that they want to throw down and this and if the show had killed off one or both of them could they could have figured out a way to kill both of them off they could have just not answered the question it could have been like they died bitter rivals but by having the end sequence they show what happens after a rivalry is settled and done with and in a in like a good positive rivalry that rivalry turns to a kind of friendship into a kind of mutual respect and friendship in a really that is an ultimately honest place for two people to be in a relationship uh, in any way but in a bad rivalry the one turns bitter and tries to defeat the other forever and it's really uncommon for sports shows to take their rival for sports, period, to pose rivalry as an honest friendship between two humans. Usually it's this bitter duel to death, and the winner will take all. But sometimes it's just a friendly, sometimes it's just the highest form of friendly competition, and I really appreciated seeing that in this show and this show taking that position because it would have been really easy for them to be like Joe won Yuri wasted away and like moved to back to his log cabin to live forever instead of Joe won Yuri lost they moved on because they didn't care about it anymore after they resolved the rivalry. And it's, it's just, I mean, if you can't tell, I really liked the show and I really enjoyed it from start to finish. Like, worse than all, this is a show worth you checking out. Um, and on that note, I hope you also find worth checking out my one scheduled panel at Liberty City Anime Con on August 18th at 1 o'clock called Mommy and Daddy Hate You A Guide to cra- to Crappy Anime Parenting um, I also hope that you if you hadn't seen it last year and it is scheduled again this year I hope it's scheduled again this year uh, want to come check out on the same day at some time at Liberty City Anime Con in the Times Square Marriott on August 18th, um, Full Metal and Beyond, a exploration of disability in anime. I promise I know what I'm talking about on that one. Um, 
But until then, or until the next podcast, actually until the next podcast, uh, I hope that you really like the show. If you did, please leave a five-star review on iTunes or literally wherever you want. Since I'm on all of the things, including Spotify. Yeah, you can you can rate me on Spotify, which would be kind of fun because I don't know how to check those ratings, and I never check those ratings. But I'm under I'm under the impression that they do help other people find me. So if you really like my show and want other people to listen to it, rate me five stars on whatever, and um, share share this podcast with your friends. Go to your friends and be like, hey, there's this beardo on the internet who talks about anime. And they'll be like, wait, which, which one? There are multiple beardos on the internet who talk about anime. You're like, oh, the good one you haven't heard yet. Here's his podcast. Listen to him. Um, but until next podcast, I have been Alex. This has been Lunchbox Radio. And I will talk at you next time. Tell